it's almost as if the attachment types are still consciously in that dialogue in a way that the hexide types have forgotten. And part of the reason you guys have forgotten is because if you were to remember, it causes um, the ego to feel threatened. The attachments of attachment types is helping them construct the ego kind of like in real time. Hmm. The big hormone enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, uh, sexual self-pres, hold it by wing, four five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-pres, sexual, nine with one, nine seven four, trifix. What up, it's Emika, I'm an eight wing seven, sexual self-pres, with eight five four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy, I am a self-pres social three, wing four, with a Six nine trifix. If you like our podcast, guys, make sure you go like and subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. And if you really like us, you should definitely leave us a review. What's up, lovers and haters? It's your master blaster, John, welcoming you to another pain-inducing big hormone enneagram episode. Continuing to serve up the slop and the trough of consciousness for our pain piggies, going further into our exploration of object relations, we brought our beloved pain queen, Courtney Smith, back. Before we get into it, uh, I want to give an overview of the concepts we've been unpacking since our series on intimacy began in episode 71. Uh, we've been using object relations theory as the primary lens from which to understand some of the deepest layers of the Enneagram types. Go back to episode 36, back to when we first had Courtney on, to dive more deeply into this. The basic idea is that the ego only exists in relationship which means that at all times we are unconsciously upholding what's called a self-image, who we think we are, uh, including a familiar feeling of how we experience ourselves, and an object image, an experience of, quote, other or the world that is likewise defined more by an unconscious emotional tone than an actual image. Uh, this, these are called, this is called an object relation where this, there's a subject image, an object image, and an emotion between them. Um, so the object image is rooted in our early life experience with our parents. This object image has two sides uh, that basically correspond with the mothering and fathering functions. We call this the nurturing function and the protecting function. We also think of prote protecting function as guidance. Between the subject or self-image and the object image it are familiar but unconscious affects. The three dominant affects are called attachment, which is where the subject adapts to the objects. This means trying to make do with whatever nurturing and protection was available to us as infants. This continues into adulthood. Uh, frustration is the other affect, which is when the subject is frustrated with the object's inability to adequately meet the self's needs for nurturing and protection. And then finally, the third affect is rejection, which is the subject experiencing certain needs as invalidated by the objects, and thus the subject cuts off certain needs from their own experience of themselves. For example, if I'm a type two, I experience my parents as rejecting my autonomy and independent will, that what's represented by the protective function. 
So as a two, I essentially don't experience those things as a part of me or as needs of my own. Uh, these object relational affects of attachment, frustration, and rejection can be in relation to just the nurturing function, just the protective function, or both depending on our Enneagram type. Types nine, three, and six are attachment types. Four, one, and seven are frustration. Five, eight, and two are rejection. We have been contrasting the attachment type strategy, which is to adapt. Uh, and these types are located on the inner triangle of the Enneagram symbol, three, nine, and six, with the frustration and rejection types. These types are fundamentally unadaptable to outer circumstances. And these types are one, four, two, eight, five, seven. They're located along the hexad of the Enneagram symbol. So sometimes it's been confusing for people. We distinguish between attachment and hexad versus attachment and frustration and rejection. Uh, hexad just describes the symbol within the Enneagram symbol that the frustration and rejection types are located. So with that, uh, let's get into it. Courtney and I had a really good conversation where Courtney made me cry profusely because of her astute insights into especially Hexad stuff that I thought was like, we've been going hard on attachment, not to say we can't keep going hard on attachment, but um, uh, yeah, you just, like Courtney, you just had such great, I don't know, just the way you, you, you phrase and see and, and summarize things was like just really impactful. And I know that we didn't even get to continue the conversation beyond that first thing, but um, I'm really excited to, uh, to get into it with everybody here. What were you like saying, it. Courtney? <laughs> Yeah, what I like, happened? I feel like you guys have been taunting me, like talking about attachment for weeks on end now. And I've been directing gonna... all that venom towards you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do I do think that there's as much to be learned about the hexad types from this conversation about attachment as there is about the attachment types. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what I think John and I were speaking about. So I do have some thoughts about that and questions and just stuff to discuss. And then as I've been listening to you guys and thinking about my own style of attachment, I also have some ways of understanding that, that I would really want to um, bump up against uh, David and Nancy, because I'm super curious how the three and nine lens changes it. Um, and I don't think there's been a six yet that's spoken about attachment other than, or it, in, over the course of this last like month long engagement you guys have done. And through some of that perspective, I just wanted to hit up, uh, like, bump up against uh, David, uh, David and Nancy, too. So those are my two big, I don't know which one you want to do first. The Hexad uh, stuff, maybe? Yeah, I think yeah. Hexad stuff, because I thought, yeah. like, you were speaking a lot. To, like, so one of the things that you opened up with is uh, speaking to what sounded like, especially Emeka and I's, uh, the way you put it. I have notes that are some, like, aversion to relationship that the attachment types maintain. And like, you know, obviously Emika and I love or in, and are in love with attachment types, but that there is this way that, yeah, when I hear the inner workings of attachment stuff, despite however many years I've known the Enneagram, uh, there's this like abort, 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 like, <laughs> get away, like, you know, kind of feeling it. I mean, it really triggers me on a very deep level, the sense of being open. And from there, you were describing um, how that whether your attachment or rejection or frustration that the ego is always formed in relationship and so the sense of the relationship for attachment is much more front and center whereas the sense of the relationship the object relation that uh is at the core of frustration and rejection 
it's like the relatedness is in a sense hidden or uh you know the the term that i thought was interesting was like frozen like that that in a sense you know that with attachment there's this ongoing uh willingness and ability to unconsciously adapt and to revise and to keep making space for uh the relationship or relationships or attachments as they move through time and space and so the the, the there's a there's a pliability or adaptability to the hex to the attachment types whereas hexad types at least my experience and this is probably reinforced by being a four there's a frozenness to that original relationship. And then the rest of living becomes trying to recreate that frozen image and in a sense force uh, my circumstances to conform to my inner image of the relationship, uh, often to great cost to like, you know, being like a normal human. Is it making mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So I think when we spoke about the object relation stuff, I guess it was almost a year ago, you know, at the beginning, I sort of, I don't like the word object relations in some ways because it feels very dry to me and theoretical and academic. And what we're talking about are really sort of heart wounds. And so we didn't really go into why is it called object relations? We we spoke about core wounds that each type was oriented to processing and understanding their primary caregiving relationships. And that's the context in which we framed and had that discussion. Mm -hmm. But I thought that when I was listening to this whole attachment discussion, sort of my entry to it in terms of how, as you were speaking, like how it relates to the hexatypes, is the idea of object relations is that when we develop self or ego, when we're very young, it involves a separation. And by definition, you cannot separate unless you're separating from someone else. And so by definition, in order for me to know my I, I have to know the not I. They cannot exist without the other, one without the other. And that's sort of the core theory of object relations. And what that means is, that as the infant or the, the baby or the toddler is growing and coming up with this idea of self, there is a constant referencing back to who am I not? I'm I, I am not this. And so as I was hearing you guys sort of talk about the attachment types, there's certain things that the attachment types that are, are doing that are, are hard for us and really set us up to fail and to um, suffer. But I think one of the things that the hex, why it's so triggering for the hexad types is it's almost as if the attachment types are still consciously in that dialogue in a way that the hexad types have forgotten. And part of the reason you guys have forgotten is because if you were to remember, it causes um, the ego to feel threatened. And so that triggering is your own emotional response to, wait a minute, if I, if I dare to acknowledge that I'm still referring back or that there, my eye is in relationship to something else, what does that mean about this eye that I'm so invested in, in the first place? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, the first thing that I wanted to say is, as we sort of talk about all the things that the attachment types are doing, and how confusing it is and how, you know, the work that we need to do, 
I, I want to make sure that the le- the playing field is understood that all of us start from this place of a reference point. And I think what's happening with the hexad types is, be- and so then he- object relations theory, which we spoke about, talks about in order to construct that I and in order to have identification with the I, as I understand it, I need to have a predictable relational pattern with the other. Mm-hmm. And that's a supportive mechanism that kind of, that allows the I is fuel for the I. And so that's the rejection and the frustration and the attachment types. And mm-hmm. so you get something really bizarre in the attachment types, which is in order to fuel an I, I need to find attachment, which I understand feels backwards, but is in some ways true for all of us. In order to feel my I, I have to refer back. And one, one thing you said, Courtney, about that that uh, really struck me and helps me understand attachment is you were speaking to the attachments of attachment types as helping them construct the ego kind of like in real time. Mm. And so like that sometimes an attachment type will be attached to somebody or a situation or dynamic that is maybe not good for them or you know, using the language we've been using in previous episodes of like, there's a yes and a no, and they can feel the no, but they'll keep going with it. Because it's not just, oh, I'm confused about what I like or need, but that there's an active way that 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 person or dynamic is helping them build an ego in the moment. Yeah, I think that there's, it makes it a lot more understandable why an attachment type would sacrifice a form of self-knowing because like, it's literally like a foundational support for the attachment ego is to be in relationship to something else. And so I might be able to give on what it is I like or what it is I want in this moment or where I'm going and you know, all those kinds of things. Those to me in the moment are much less weighty than this like very kind of core, I remain in relationship with something, with someone. And I will sacrifice a lot of stuff which feels kind of on the margin to me around sort of definition of self, because this is a big one. And if I let go of this, there's really nothing here. That's, that's huge. That's, um, that's a really interesting way to frame, frame that, like constructing a sense of self through an attachment to something or someone, which kind of reminds me of that um, initial thing that we talked about in the first Hexad versus attachment call on parasocial relationships, like kind of like a head exploding kind of idea. It's like, oh, attachment types are kind of assuming as a baseline that they're having, you know, assumed baseline of relationship to everyone. And which is kind of like a, well, maybe some people might look, hear that and like, duh. But to me, that's like <laughs> how, you know, but what you're saying is really a different angle on on that idea that that's the thing is i'm figuring out who i am based on relationship to something or someone else i'm having a hard time um having anything to say in response to that because that's so obvious to me (laughs) wait what what's so obvious like what courtney just said i was like thinking i'm like why don't i have anything to say about this and i'm like because it's the only way i know how to exist I have absolutely no understanding of the other way. And I'm just like, well, of course, of course, I find myself in relation to other people. There's no other way to do it. 
<laughs> I have literally nothing to add to that because it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. that was <laughs> Sorry. That was not obvious to uh to me. No. <laughs> yeah. John and I are over here like, you don't say. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and so when you think about in contrast, the hexad types if attachment is not the fuel or that sort of like one of the core, you know, if it's this, you know, uh, you picture like a house and like pylons in the ground or something like that. And you picture attachment as one of those core foundational supporting structures for the three, six, nine, you know, for the hexad types, it's either frustration or rejection. And so you can picture that it's super threatening to that support structure of, you know, no, 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 or no fucking way, or, you know, how, all, that pushing back, that resisting that the frustration and rejection types do are doing in their various forms to, to acknowledge that that resistance is actually a relationship mm-hmm. is, is cutting very close to the bone for a hexad type. Is that the piece that was uh, that uh, hit you emotionally, John, or what was what was getting you there? We want to make you cry, John. Hurry up! Yeah, let's do it. Let's bring it. Um, yeah. So, like, one of the things that like Courtney and I were speaking to her distinctions that she was making was like that uh, you know hexatypes are identified with their location, like their sense of like their own internal experience is like the field, so to speak, it's like, that's, that's where their energy and attention is going versus attachment is the field is outer, it's relational. And there's a way of trying to get on board with that. Whereas hexad is like, get on board with me or I'm, or or I as the hexad type, I'm trying to make my outer circumstances fit this inner place. And so one of the things though, when you're speaking to is like, you know, my particular soul matey meeting of the souls thing. And, uh, how it's like uh, I will sort of get into these spaces of deep intimacy and openness and surrender. And then something knocks me out and comes back in full of jealousy or whatever and control and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I'm, I'm trying to put, uh, you know, in the case of like my partner or whatever that this plays out with, like in a box and in a box that that uh and put myself in a box so that like and our boxes are related through a specific channel you know that's like it's oh. a very specific hmm. lens and that because it's a box it's actually uh not conducive to the kind of intimacy and relatedness that i'm actually seeking and so you know courtney spoke to, the way she put it was like uh there's a commitment to not being met through the lens of frustration mm-hmm. oh, wow right? <laughs> and um you know we when we were sp- speaking i was in more of like a, a a raw place in the first place but um yeah just just that sense of and, and then courtney you were talking about you're noticing um like the role that disgust plays like especially in four and how much like i think i don't i don't remember if we did talk about it but i think we i think we, yeah we talked about like um the mental health stuff i went through in college right yeah yeah. I mean, I think in the same way that we're sort of speaking about, as I said, like attachment as a foundational support structure for, and we'll just use the four, like, let's do the frustration types. Frustration is actually, and I, and I would say it's not only a foundational support structure for the ego, but it's actually the core suffering that the type um, is experiencing. That 
there's a temporary salve in that emotional response of attachment, frustration, or rejection hmm. for each type. And so for, um, for the four to have this feeling of the sort of the abyss of self or the depth and mystery and intimacy of um, true knowing uh, of self, the heart knowing of self, that by definition is elusive and unknowable. And so the closest you can get to that is by saying, not that, not that, not that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's the only, so from a fours construction of ego, the frustration is actually provides this temporary feeling of, oh, I found it because I know it's not this. Yeah, yeah. And of course it's unfindable. It's this core wound that's never going to be solved through outside circumstances. But the four is addicted to using frustration and dissatisfaction with with the other as a way of trying to get to it. And so by definition, if, if the four is addicted to frustration or needs frustration in order to calm the wound temporarily, what happens if the other is actually right? What happens if, if, if he or she were actually open to circumstances and the intimacy that they're looking for is actually there, they're not going to be able to see it mm-hmm. because they only know how to relate through frustration. Mm-hmm. Damn. That's deep. <laughs> and so that's the heartbreak of it, right? Is that reality has to be seen a certain way in order for that frustration reaction to make sense. So there's a kind of blinding and what we were, the frozenness or, you know, I can, reality has to only come at me in this certain way. And I'm committed to it actually not being right. I'm committed to it, not meeting my needs, because that's how I continue to feel frustrated. And all I know in terms of how to fix myself and fix this longing and pain I have is frustration. Damn. Yeah, I can already feel where that's going with rejection, and it does not feel good. <laughs> yeah, can you run through rejection? Let's make it really hurt. Yeah, Courtney, <laughs> pull out the daggers, please. <laughs> so, so we might say the not that, not that. In the rejection types, you might picture it as like a little literal turning of the back, and that turning of the back for the eight, the act of that turning actually has power and vitality and a feeling of here I am, I just turned my back on you. But it's very temporary and it, it's, it doesn't last for very long, right? The moment you've turned your back, it, that moment is over and now what? You're stuck with nothing. And there's just going to be a continual turning of the back, turning of the back, reject, reject, reject. And by definition, you have to avert your eyes to what's actually present in the moment in order to continue to sustain that turning of the back. And so that feeling of aliveness and meeting the moment and, you know, the, the, the sheer sort of power and force of what's available is never going to actually, the eight is never going to actually have its his or her eyes open to that possibility because it means they may not have to turn their back. And that's really all they know as the way to 
deal with their own pain. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting there is that you can see the turning the back uh, in a in a as a as a riff or flavor off of the nine dissociation and spacing out, but it's just like a different quality of it. Yeah, kind of like the experience that I've spoken to of watching my personality um, fucking dissociate from goodness in the moment where (laughs) it doesn't feel like it's me. I'm actually watching myself experiencing something. So this literal like rejection continuing to play out even when I don't want it to. Because it's automated. It's, there's no, um, and also each one of us is sort of set up and this is what, what John and I were talking about is the moment you dare to open to the possibility of the moment, there's such risk there and it will hurt because it will be imperfect by definition. It will not be what we hope it will be because we have this idealized notion and of what it could be. So it's really very difficult to not trigger that automated response because the moment it hurts again, you have to sit with that pain and sit with like the pain. It's not what I thought, but it's actually a right. Mm. If I can get rid of what I think it should be, but that's very difficult to do. And so then it triggers the turning of the back or it triggers the good enough of the attachment types, or it triggers the not that, not that of the frustration types. You know, one thing I realized in like the last decade of my, my, dating problems is I had to come to terms with the the fact that I was addicted to recreating rejection, like just recreating this no. And um, that I was, you know, problematic situations romantically were coming up and I was recognizing them, but I, I kept going back to them and thinking that I could like make it work, but it was kind of a way to recreate, keep going back to rejection, keep making that no happen again and again and again like a no from you or a no from other people both Hmm. both um you know there were times where i would feel comfortable when i knew that the person uh were likely to reject me like you know maybe there's a like Hmm. in the beginning stage where I, you know, it wasn't really, I was trying to figure out if this person was really going to be into me or not. And, you know, once they really figure out what kind of animal I am and you get to that point where, you know, yeah, they're probably not, you know, this is probably not going to work. That's like a comfortable place. That's, this is where we're going to end up anyway. And so I had to recognize that. And I would like, I want to climb my way out of that hole, but that the rejection point is like, this is the point we're always going to get to. And I want to get it over with. And um, so I had to recognize that, you know, there were ways that I was unconsciously creating rejection and feeling comfortable with it or even trying to force it. Uh, and so just being able to accept the possibility of love um, without uh, trying to ruin it. Um, I had to basically stop. That's what I realized. Like me trying to make it happen is the problem because I'm replaying a certain pattern and I needed to get out of my own way because I'm, I'm the one that's creating my own mess. But in doing so in the, the relationship I'm currently in, one thing that we've discussed is the feeling of feeling completely disoriented because I didn't, I wasn't the activating force in conceptualizing this whole thing. Like I didn't 
orchestrated. Um, a lot of it was kind of me saying yes to something that was much bigger than me. And um, that has been a big reason why this has felt like, holy shit, you know, recognizing my own fixatedness and stuckness and wanting to recreate rejection. It's been a big thing. What you're saying sounds so much like what I was saying on the podcast where John was not present of <clears throat> the greatest like, episode we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, correct. Also known as um, <laughs> of us having a hand in our own trauma and pain and how mm-hmm. shitty that is. It's like we create it for ourselves. And like the immense pain that we feel is like our own bed that we made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, I think we do it in different ways. And I think what Emeka's talking about, I think is like, is really evocative and beautiful and heartfelt because the hexad types, this idea of like, how do I like have ego constructed around location? This is it. And John spoke about the word surrender to dare to be receptive to something's unfolding here, or there's a relationship or a place I'm going or a field of relatedness. There's something here that I'm not locating. Mm -hmm. That's the, it's, there's no I here. That's, I mean, there is, and there's not basically. I think there's a better word for, for this, but for the, from the attachment perspectives, there's this real perspective of like, you guys are really controlling this. Like there's a real need mm-hmm. to sort of dictate the terms yeah. on which here's where I am. And so therefore this is where you need to be. And this is how we're going to relate to one another. That's what it feels like to an attachment type. And um, that's what you're meaning by locating. Yes. Yeah. So all of this conversation about yes, no, that you guys have been having. I mean, I think there's a lot in there for me and all attachment types, but some of it, like the obsession with yes, no, that's, that's an ego thing in and of itself to think that like, if I know my yes, no's, I'll know who I am is already we're in the, we're in Mm -hmm. the world of identification. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so, and so that's some of the, not, not pushback, but like kind of nuance as like, as attachment types have been listening to these calls and beating themselves up. And I have some more to say about that, but so I think there is work there, but I want to acknowledge that, that this conversation is coming from the point of view of there is an I here I need to identify and I'm the one who does it. Which is a hex. Yes, yes, yes. And what I hear you sort of saying is like, actually, I don't know everything here. I'm not the one that gets to decide this. And I'm open to how I get carried and moved here in a way that I cannot tell you what will happen. I cannot predict it. I cannot, I'm part of it, but I am not, I'm not making it happen. That, that has been such a, a life-changing experience for me of um, part of my, my progression, I guess, was recognizing that the heart space was not something that I can control, that you're completely, um, you have to be completely open to whatever comes up, feelings are just, that's what they are. 
And going there was kind of letting go of whatever sense of control that I, you know, that I could steer things in chemistry. And, um, and so recognizing that there was so much of chemistry that I had no control of that could come together to my benefit, that if I just got out of the way and allowed it to happen was a huge thing. And just that experience is like, how the fuck did I get here? I didn't make this happen, but it happened and it's better than anything that I've ever come up with. And so that experience is like, you know, this wasn't based on me being over specific about my location. It was based on saying yes to something that had some location to it, but I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know it was going to go to someplace this amazing. I didn't see it coming. And that is a really fucking uh, threatening thing to a hexat type. I think also, like Nancy, when you were talking last week or whenever it got released a couple of days ago, where you were sort of speaking about how you weren't feeling so great about yourself over the course of the call, you know, what I wanted to say in that moment and what I wanted to say to other attachment types, including myself, who've been listening to this conversation is part of what's happening is John and Emika as hexad types, they are reacting, expressing judgment, confusion, disbelief, uh, disgust with this willing to relinquish location. And there is some truth in what they're saying that is very helpful for us. But it is very tempting for an attachment type to attach to those feelings mm. of judgment, disbelief, mm-hmm. confusion, and disgust. And they are actually not ours. Mm. They are theirs. And they are theirs. Mm. That's actually their work. And so to hear their truth without, t- to hear their feedback without taking on their emotional response is actually the work of a ha- and the attachment type. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you. yeah, you hit the nail on the head there for sure. Because it's, I I don't know what to say about that, but it it that's that's it. <laughs> that that opens my eyes too in terms of uh, some of the head head scratching reactions that people might have to anything we say or do in the group or whatever else the attachment types might be taking on our owners our own expressions and trying to locate them in themselves and uh, and you know us not really understanding where that's coming from. So this continual process of attachment types, you know, kind of, yeah, taking on, I might say, you know, fuck this or whatever. I think this is blah, blah, blah. That's just my location. And I, I'm assuming that you're going to have your location and it's got nothing to do with me. It's, we can go back and forth mm-hmm. and, and maybe our locations overlap. That's how I assume people relate, but that's not how it works for attachment types. I might say something and then uh, an attachment type might take that on as me saying that about them or... Um, they might try to like reconcile with that feeling and and then they might come back at me with some reaction. And I'm like, where did that come from? That that's, you know, I didn't, you know, that whole thing. So no, it's really interesting to to understand that, you know. Yeah. So um now I have something to say about that. Um it's really it's it's very so I have like two reactions to other people's like emotions that tend to get absorbed into me, which would be like either I shut down, which is what I was doing on the last call, which I kind of just like 
go into my show and I have zero reactions to anything. Um, or I, I can be very volatile and like react really negatively um, <clears throat> and really like ruin friendships. So that that can kind of lead me to like being nervous about certain things. Um, so like David and I were talking uh, recently about how I have some fear around you guys meeting Brian because um, if you guys say or even suggest or insinuate or even like side-eye anything about me and Brian, I'm really afraid that it's going to like make me question things or something like that. And so that's one of those scenarios where it's like, I'm holding myself back from doing something that I want to do because I'm so afraid of someone else's reaction. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's unnecessary. It's, but that's like what I constantly do. I don't know what to say about it. It's just like, it's very, it's, it can be like overwhelming and take over everything that I do because I just don't want to have other people's reactions come into me at all. I've been a certain thinking, kind of anxiety. Yeah. Know? I've been thinking a lot about for myself, the work that I've done and that I need to continue to do around you guys would call it locating yes, no. And I think there's some truth to that and other um, just all of this work around object relations, all of this, my own interest in it really started with trying to help myself. And so all of this, I continue to mine, even as I'm so curious about other people and want to, you know, engage with other people and help other people. For me, the driving orientation has been, you know, where is my truth in this? Where does this help me? And then as long as I can refer back to that, that's what gives me confidence that I'm onto something good. Mm -hmm. And go ahead. I was just going to say, I think uh, something that helps me kind of get through those moments is just remembering that I don't have to take anything in. Mm -hmm. So it just, you know, it's something to remember for me. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work around practicing physiological self-regulation. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that there's, I don't know, I've like sort of like thinking about, and the evidence is really good when you read stuff around like breakups and divorces. And, you know, they, they talk about how there's actually a recalibration of the nervous system. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's definitely true for attachment types. I don't, I don't know about, I would assume for other types and maybe they're just not aware of it. I don't know. We could talk about that, but in any case, <laughs> um, so I've been thinking about this idea of, you know, resourcing my ability to regulate my physiological state. And real, when I think about doing meditation and there's so much meditation, that's very headspace oriented. And I actually think for sixes, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, that really bringing sensation to the body, noticing what's there, and then noticing if it changes over time by bringing attention to my breath or by finding my feet on the ground or whatever, mm -hmm. um, that that's actually like a really powerful exercise that is a metaphor for what the attachment types need to do, not just with their, their bodies. Um, can you remember your ability to self-regulate? And so I, as you were talking about, Brian, I can Im imagine like if you guys ever had a meeting, you would feel in your body, your, your body would be open to reading Emika and John and David's energy. 
and would, would be tempted to take it in. Mm-hmm. And having a practice around actually, as I'm watching them like make a face or do whatever they're doing, like, can I find my breath? Can I find my feet on the ground? Can I continue to hold my field? I imagine would be, I mean, it would, it's helpful for me. And I imagine it would be helpful in that circumstance. Yeah. That's kind of really unsettling to think about on one level for me, <laughs> just, just the amount of uh, that. Uh, I mean, I track other people because I'm an assertive type and I do want to know what my impact on other people are. But the idea that um, other people's reactions are something that I would be absorbing into my body, that that feels violating on some level for me. That's like, It is violating. <laughs> It 100% is violating. But it's not necessarily. So this is where I want to like push back because I think the word violating, I appreciate that you use that word. I think it's really revealing. But the reality is, if you really look at it, my inner and outer experience, there's really like, what's the difference? Like, what's the difference between inner information and outer information? They're actually the same when you like really get down to it. And so it's not that I want like Nancy or myself to ignore outside information. It's that I want you to remember, I want me to remember inside information just as I'm taking in outside information also. And Mm -hmm. so for me, the, the use of the word violation, it's such a strong word. And I think it's actually accurately like reflecting how it's making sense to you. But to me, that is like a pointer to just how much is at stake for you if outer information penetrates yep yeah and that's mm-hmm. and that's a, actually a lesson for you right mm-hmm. yeah it's the opposite that for me sense. yeah is that we have to remember because it's too much too much of my inner location or information overriding whatever's happening out there i'm basically mm-hmm. saying i don't give a shit what's what you're saying or what's happening i know where i'm at and uh, I'm going to look for what matches that out there. But um, so there's a lot of cutting off of what's happening out there to just uh, limit myself to whatever that location is. Yeah. Well, well, I yeah. think when John yeah. and I talked about discuss, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that. Dis- oh, sorry. Do you want it to say it? Or no, no, no. You it's, go your, for it. it's your feeling. <laughs> 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 I offer uh, my disgust for all to receive. <laughs> Well, it's just, so, you know, when John and I were talking about some of this and also when he spoke about the way he experienced the world many years ago around, you know, a literal feeling of disgust at the other and the possibility that they might, you know, it was almost like invade, Uh almost like a disease Uh uh, and just one drop would like of exposure would be enough to like taint his whole, you know, being Uh is how I was picturing Uh it. and. The emotion discussed in particular is is very interesting because we really only bring it out under the most dire of circumstances. You know, we like when you think about like from an evolutionary perspective, when do we feel disgust? It's around like contaminated food. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like incest and other um, sexual relationships, right? That we uh-huh. deem like unproductive. Um, so it, it's really like an emotion that is designed to provide a very, very, very hard barrier uh, um, with no give. And so 
to me, John, A, it's very easy as an attachment type to pick up any whiff of that, right? And to let it attach to ourselves. So there's that for us who are listening to these calls as John articulates that feeling. But from John's perspective, to me, when I hear that disgust, that is a sign that the ego feels very threatened. And instead of reacting with the disgust and kind of going with the disgust, using it as a, an alarm or a signal that he might be moved or touched in that moment and how scary that feels. It literally feels life or death. That's what disgust means. This is a life or death situation for us. And we actually know that it's not. And so instead of like being judgmental and thinking, you know, I'm crazy or whatever, to instead see that as a really potent sign to the sensitivity of John's ego and sensitivity that like something gets in, I might move. I might be receptive. I might actually respond. And from an ego's perspective, I can't let that happen. Well, like uh, one of the, the words that came up spontaneously as we were talking about this was like feeling of being raped. Ooh. Like it, it felt like that, that level to me. And like that, there's like a whole, I mean, it's too much whatever, but like just the whole life, I'm feeling like I need to separate. I need to keep out. I need to control X, Y, or Z. Because it feels like I have like, it feels like I like the, the sort of speaking to the frozen image earlier. It's like there's this like jewel I have. It's like that everybody's like comes into life with, and that life is just this like series of degradations and and like life, like the earth or whatever, is just like made of rotten feces, just like you know something with all the nourishment taken out. And it's like I have to protect this jewel in me that's like wrapped up in my sense and my heart and my identity. And, you know, it's like every choice we make in a sense, like tries to tarnish it. And so every, every, it just feels like this sense of, of everything being tarnished and violated and used in the worst way by something outside of myself. And yes, just the intensity of which that's like a very real and operative feeling. And the, the sense of like, it's it's like yeah oh I might be touched and it's like and then like oh and then I'm touched you know it it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like this like oh I was just touched you know it feels like something's trying to just like not just to kill but to like drag through the filth the th- the 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 last thing that I know to be precious does that make sense mm-hmm. and I think from a force perspective. And we spoke on the object relations call about the four being sensitive and identified and having to process wounds, both in the feminine side around unconditional love, but also on the masculine side of of guidance and participation in the world. And so for me to hear and I, I think I know that every four is unique, but like the <laughs> idea. That, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter like is constantly reminding me that. Uh, uh, I have a feeling that there are many fours that have that 
visceral ugliness, decay, uh, degradation, non-consensual violation, those kinds of, that kind of language. And, and to me, it speaks to, I can imagine how hard it is to feel those feelings, but I, I actually think it's because of the extreme sensitivity underneath it. Um, and this, whether you know it or not, if I let something come in, it, it will, I am open to being affected by it. And hence the defense that's needed that's so mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. I think it comes up uh, in Alexander and I's conversations and stuff a lot is like the complete sense of a lack of renewal that's possible in the world. Like, you know, something as a nine that she mm. brings up a lot is there's a certain resiliency and renewal and, and it's both in the sense of hope, but it's also in the sense of like the energy like moves through her. And there's a, there's always like things She's are in touch with the cycles. Yeah, exactly. There's this cyclical thing. And even like when it, when I refer to like, well, how we're all just like, you know, in a sense, like every choice is like a degradation of our original nature or something, you know, it's like this, this whittling away and sense of decay and loss. And, and she's like, well, I don't, I don't feel that way. And I see like, even if the individual life is extinguished, there's a renewal for future life. And it's like, I'm, I'm radically out of touch with that sense of renewal. And like when I'm when I'm really in my stuff, it just seems like decay in every direction. You know, it just seems like entropy and, and heat death and, you know, like whatever. And so, uh, yeah, that's like the thing I've been trying to work on and understand is like, where does, where does renewal come from? Because like, I mean, in a sense that there is like the renew, renewal that comes from higher worlds or whatever through inner work. And like I've, there are different times in my life where I'm I'm really in touch with that and and really not, but it's uh, it it again can kind of become another way of being removed from the world, and so like that I think that's been an edge of my inner work is like like is is there a renewal that's not just a getting out of the world because you know like, yeah anyway it's removed from the universe too because the universe if you just simply look at it the solar system i mean it's renewal 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 i mean death rebirth death rebirth right 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 yeah yeah to me that's so interesting because and this is like how we trip ourselves up right the more you withdraw the less you're able to actually participate in the renewal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. because by definition the renewal is bigger than self well I mean, the sun, <clears throat> the life-giving sun, is hundreds of billions of nuclear explosions every second. So the destruction is also the creation, and it's continually creating and con- continually destroying. So, you know, the four perspective or whatever is just looking at the destruction. Yeah, because I'm like so located in my individual uh, whatever that like I can't see the like like even if I know that like the renewal comes in some abstract sense somewhere else like I can only see like the the rot in front of me yeah mm-hmm. and also like from a six perspective it it actually require and this is why the location stuff is hard too is it actually requires a faith that you may not actually see it right. that, that cycle right is mm. bigger than what human eyes can discern Right. Yeah, I had to come to terms mm-hmm. with uh, the the idea that 
um because i've spent a large portion of my life obsessed about the different facets of attraction and i just keep discovering different ways that this thing is happening but i could study this thing for the rest of my life and there would be no way that i would understand all the different facets and there's this this thing called attraction is so big and there are forces that are way beyond any that anyone can even orchestrate or understand that can put two people together that fit perfectly and even what perfect means so i i just you know just seeing the bigness of everything way beyond anything that i could ever grasp was something that I, you know i had to come to understand that um the, the concept of control or the concept of steering something is kind of foolish in the grand scheme and right. also continuing my theme <clears throat> you know that rot and that filth and that festering decay that's a supercharger fertilizer for growth upward towards the sun in plants you know i'm talking right. about compost right. and so forth anyway. right right yeah i think it speaks to potential right so I was saying, the, I like the analogy too of it being compost and fertilizing, um, but it to me it was also just sort of the payoff could be so big. Otherwise, we wouldn't put up such high defenses. Yeah, right. And there's even magic mushrooms that come with beautiful visions from that rot. <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly where it comes from is that decay. Yeah, it's just this stuckness, this stuckness in like a a a, a certain facet of the the cycle, you know, just this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I keep just getting caught in the tractor beam of mm-hmm. the yeah. same thing and I guess that's the addiction, the commitment to frustration. Yep. And and one thing that John said this is uh in one of the chats is this idea of like even even wanting to adapt and watching yourself not be able to mm-hmm. one thing one thing that i've seen in myself is i go through phases where you know i've got a big boundary up and i and i start thinking to myself you should loosen this boundary and, and let more things in that you probably don't think you should let in just you know you know loosen up and and let things in and then i do i do loosen up i feel like oh yeah i'm adapting i'm and then something happens whatever it is that i feel like is a violation and then the security system just like doubles down mm-hmm. and and so it feels like as time goes on that i see every time that i open the doors to adapting or putting down the boundary something happens where i end up rejecting even more than i did before it's like i keep seeing more reasons to mm-hmm. reject mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so i just keep doubling down on the thing mm-hmm. and uh and so it's just like, what a trap. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it because I like to come up with metaphors or just very simple images for what's going on, because I think so much of this is, does have a childlike, you know, it's, it's super automated, super impulsive, um, super emotion-based. And I do think what you're saying is important, Emma, because I do think rejection your rejection is never going away for you you know it will always be your sort of at some point it will continue it will come up again and again and again and attachment types the same and frustration types the same i was talking to john about this a little bit in the same way that we used and you guys can tell me if it doesn't feel right 
I'm really curious about that. But in the same ways we talked about the, you know, the baby on the changing table or the toddler taking their first step, I was trying to come up with phrases or a, a situation that would evoke these responses. And so then we could sort of talk about like, well, what happens when you have a frustration type with an attachment type or what you're, or whatever, what's mm. when the combination happens, what, what's the dynamic that evolves and what are they giving each other and what are they, where are they going to limit themselves? And I've done a lot of part of having my kids as I've done a lot of um, observation of children playing um, in these different play groups that I did as a young mom. And you can really see these, A, you can see these patterns in children really early, but also you can see their lack of judgment about them. Mm-hmm. You know, they just do what they want to do. And, <laughs> like, and so I wanted to kind of bring that quality to these, because I, I do think that there's like a heaviness I'm noticing on this call as we are all sort of like sitting in our own muck. And I I think that there is a facing that's required, but also a little bit of like, like there goes John's like inner three-year-old again, or, you know, that kind of quality to it to help provide some hopefulness and light and just, and have it, it's serious, but it's not, you know, um, because we're all doing it in some way. And, and so what I had come up with was, you know, watching kids when they're playing like a game together or playing, like my kids always had to play with like these like blocks at their preschool, whatever. And the frustration type, like the image I came up with was like a little, like I had like little John in my head or also my (laughs) daughter. (laughs) Like, you know, like we're going to play it my way or I'm playing alone. (laughs) (laughs) And then John and I started talking about it. And what's amazing is, and I, so that's why I wanted to see if it happens on this call. Like John can actually remember doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and like, what did that feel like, you know, in that moment? And, and so I just, I think that there's an idea like returning to that, whether you're in a fight with someone or you see it in yourself or just even exploring the little kid in you that says like we're doing it my way or I'm playing by myself <laughs> yeah I mean the, the example we talked about that immediately came to mind was like in kindergarten playing Star Wars and I had everybody be different characters and I was Luke Skywalker and then they wanted to like have Power Rangers or something they wanted to be Power Rangers and I was like there's no Power Rangers in Star Wars I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> and and How dare you <laughs> and instead of like and i i had I, I just i just you know talking about it out loud with courtney was interesting because it was like yeah they all wanted to play they all started playing power rangers and i just stayed playing star wars and was like fuck y'all i'm out you know and uh like i felt <laughs> sad about it but it was like there was no adapting there was no like on the same page it was like it's got to be this way or fuck them they were going through a cycle a cycle that went from Star Wars to Power Rangers. <laughs> I'm staying in Star Wars. Yeah. But I just, I think that that would be like a really useful to like have that discussion with your partner or with people that you work, whatever. Um, Cause it really humanizes it. And actually, you know, and what's interesting is when you watch teachers or you watch, you know, the grown up in the room deal with the kids, for all I know, maybe John should have kept playing Star Wars. Like maybe the Power Rangers was fucking stupid, you know. So it was. <laughs> <laughs> Power Rangers. It's a, it's a fact. 
All right. <laughs> so I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to get too hung up on like, there's John going to, you know, like he's doing his thing again. Like, how could he do that? He should have played Power Rangers, whatever. Like, for all we know, that could have been right. And it's the right move in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. And in other circumstances, it's not. And so when you watch classrooms with teachers, good teachers who really know what they're doing and understand development, it's, they don't tell that kid, you got to play with what the group wants to play necessarily. Sometimes they do, mm-hmm. but not always. And so kind of giving yourself permission to when you do that in like your own, like your grown up version of it, like what would the, te- like, and this is an attachment thing, what would the teacher say to you? Like, find your voice play with the group what actually wants to happen here what's the what's the attachment thing so I I I think the attachment so this is what I really wanted to talk to you and David about because I I feel like it's like you know like I want to play with you you know like that kind of um sweetness of like look there's no game unless both of us are playing um and I like it doesn't work if I do it by myself (laughs) I thought so <laughs> because I have a story about that. Listen to this, like, oh, yes, there is. Yeah, yeah there is. there's a game I can play by myself. <laughs> no, it's no fun. I was playing with this girl in my backyard when I was little, and she was like, Well, I don't want to play this game if I don't win. And I walked into my my house and I told my mom that because I just thought it was the strangest thing. And she was like, well, you don't have to play with her, Nancy. And I was like, well, that's no fun. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it was really odd because she was like, I have to win. And I was like, what? Yeah. So I think there's like stuff in that for you, right? Um, And I think for the rejection types, I mean, you can, I'm like, this is, it's like, I refuse to play this game. (laughs) And maybe even when I'm really upset, I refuse to let this game be played at all. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not only will I not play this game, but neither will you. <laughs> I know a lot of rejection people. And yep. <laughs> yep. You're an asshole, Emika. I know it. <laughs> it wasn't obvious already. No, that's good. That's that's good. It's not just saying, uh, well, it's just rejecting the whole thing altogether. It's not even a negotiation of of Star Wars versus um, Power Rangers. It's like, why are we playing any of these games? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you can see how, I mean, so I, that's where I get like very curious. How does that work when two rejection types are together? Hmm. Well, I can think about my relationship to my mother, who's a two. Um, it becomes a negotiation of needs. Uh, like, I know that she needs me to, to give her certain things. And so she's offering me something. And because I'm, a, I'm also a rejection type, I know where it's going. And so I'm thinking for myself, like, you know, what am I getting from this? Uh, so it's like, we're going to be useful to each other. And that's kind of how we relate to each other. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know about five, but there's a way that I feel like rejection types are offering something. Uh, and you, we have to negotiate from a rejection type to another rejection type. It's like if what you're offering me is useful to you and if what I'm offering you is going to be useful. 
and that's but we're both kind of assuming that's how relationships work so it kind of just happens that way when you you say useful could you tell me more what that means um so for for example my mom knows that she uh, she might have emo she has emotional needs like she needs me to hear her out she needs me to hear like whatever drama that she's created for herself and so she wants me to um sit down with her and have lunch or whatever and hear her side of things and perhaps help her do some task like there's a way of that she's trying to create connection between us and you know it took me a while to understand that like these talks and these ways that she wants me um to feel connected to me and to have me just kind of enrolled in what she's doing and for me it's like well i'm spending time doing this thing that i don't necessarily get anything out of why and so she offers certain things to make that happen so she'll say i have this food that i want you to have i'm going to drop off some food which means i want to spend time with you i mean so there's this way of saying that i have to see that what she's getting at and what she's presenting to me in order to get the thing that she wants to get and she knows that this is going to be a hook for me it's like oh she's going to give me this thing or she's going to take me shopping there's these these ways that i'm she's offering something to get the thing and uh so it feels that way about rejection types it's like i'm offering you this thing um this is how i have to relate to you is this offering that's super interesting so what i hear you saying is it's it's really interesting it's transactional and and role based there's not a real connection there is a real connection but the connection is on the basis of i'm going to make myself useful to you that's not a real connection because you're not connecting <laughs> without use. I mean, it's just for your being. Well, what I think the usefulness is more, I guess it's more like, a, this is the end. This is the door. This okay. is the door. This is the door that I walk through in order to mm-hmm. connect. There is connection. It's just like, this is the door that I'm presenting. I have to walk through this door in order to get to a place where I mean, you sometimes the as she might tell me that she wants to give me something. I might say I don't need it, and we will still connect. But like this is the invitation. I'm going to start off by you know offering something. Do you do that? I do that. I think with two is a little bit more overt in terms of being of service. And for me, I guess um, it's more of an energetic boundary thing where I. I take on a role of representing some kind of strength for people and, and, and um, that becomes a way to relate. I I guess I'm not consciously thinking of that as an offering, but um, yeah, I figure that, you know, nobody gives a fuck about anybody unless they are of some use. (laughs) So I'm not as consciously thinking I have to be useful to John and David or whatever, but it's like, this is just the way people this is the door through which people relate. Like you need to bring something. That's what the fuck are you bringing um, to even exist here? So, I mean, that's kind of like the underlying sort of baseline, but I mean, there you do, that's a door, but that's how relationships begin is we're furthering our own, all of our aims in some kind of way. We're useful to each other in some sort of way. That's the like fundamental rejection point of view. Cause it's like, 
uh, yeah, like basically I've rejected myself. So what, what gives me legitimacy to like be here? And so yeah. it's offering through the lens of my dominant center. So like, yeah, Emika's constantly offering his energy, uh, you know, like the, the straight talkingness, the like, you know, I mean, even editing this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Direct clarity. Kind of like, I know that my, my, in any situation that my role is to sort of make sure that the ship stays afloat, like there's going to be <laughs> the boundaries, you know, like uh, you know, at some point I grew up and realized that there are not a lot of people that can, can like quickly spot the problem and know where it's going and how to stop it from happening. That's a very specific to eight perspective. And, you know, people, you know, recognize that in you and they start to depend on that because I mean, over and over again, you start to just, narrow down on problems before anybody else does and then so all my life i've always uh found myself useful to a lot of people because if you end up solving problems for a lot of people people start to depend on you that's just what naturally happens and you start to believe you know you unconsciously believe that this is what i bring and can i ask you something is it because one of the other thing i was thinking about the hex head types versus attachment is and i was and i think i was listening specifically to alexandra talk about it too is i think that there's this idea for the attachment types is when i feel attachment when that feels secure to me then i will find myself and i will op risk mm -hmm. opening myself to you but i need the attachment or connection to to be there first mm -hmm. i was thinking that it is the reverse with the hexad types like when i'm secure of my location then i can risk connecting mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so I, 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 it's with that in mind, I was, that just came to my mind as I was listening to you talk about the offering. When I, and I'm, I, maybe it's not, maybe they're not, not related at all, but just sort of this sense of like, when I do what I do, whatever that is, then, and, and you spoke about it as like a door, then something else might happen. Well, because I, I just expect no, like whatever my energy brings to the table, people might try to attach to that, but I can see that there's a, a hidden no. And it's like, I don't think a connection can truly happen until someone says a genuine yes to what I bring to the table. And uh, yeah, that's, but I just expect that not to happen. And so when it does happen, it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> 